Well, when terrible things happen, when the world is spinning out of control, many people ask, where was God? Other people will debate if this God, whoever he may be, even exists, and some will question the fact if he does exist, is he good or is he powerful? Now, in our passage today, it's about 600 B.C., uh, the wicked uh, world superpower Babylonians are marching towards Judea, the area of Jerusalem, and perhaps such discussions are taking place among people who would profess to be believers. Where is God? What is going on? Then they hear the prophet Habakkuk, and he comes along and he says, well, here's why they're coming. God's letting them through because of the sin of his people, because of our sin. And I doubt that they were too happy to hear that. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord said, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, to some people, maybe even to you, that must have been like sandpaper. To hear that God's letting the, the proud Babylonians come in and, and calling them upright, and, and then to say that the just shall live by his faith, for some of you, you might think, I don't get that. It's, it's, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. God, it doesn't seem to work. Then in chapter 3, verse 2, which we looked at last week, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then this key statement, in wrath, remember mercy. The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to bring God's wrath, and Habakkuk wants God to remember mercy. So just imagine you're one of the people, you're listening to Habakkuk, and what might you say to him? Something like this, okay, Mr. Smart Guy Prophet, we get it. We abandon God, we, we need to start living by faith, and we see that the Babylonians are coming, but you still have not answered the questions. Where is God? And today, Habakkuk is going to answer that question. He's coming. He's coming. And how do you know he's coming? Answer, because he always comes. The title of our message this morning is Rejoicing in the God who shows up. Rejoicing in the God who shows up. As Habakkuk sees the saving God who shows up, we notice it pulls him into prayer and it pulls him into worship. And the fact of the matter is this. The way you and I think about God the way you and I think about God affects the way we think, the way we pray, and the way we live. In chapter 1, Habakkuk asked, why? That was the big question, why God? And you know, chapter 1 about Habakkuk, here's the thing. It's easy for us to understand why 
and it preaches. I mean, people love to hear that kind of stuff. Like, we can ask God why. But today's verses, in some ways, like last week, are particularly tough. You say, why? Because today, and I purposely didn't go into the last section, which we'll cover next time. Today, we have 13 verses that are just about God. Now, you say, well, what are you talking about? That is something I think, believe it or not, we're really not all that used to in the American church. I'll challenge us that a lot of times we really don't like sermons about God as much as we like sermons about us and how God's going to help us get to the place where we want to be. The goal is to try to, as we read through this, because the language is very interesting, if you read ahead, to try and understand some of the figures of speech that Habakkuk is using and then step back from the figures of speech and step into and gaze at the splendor of God. You might ask, well, I get it, but how can that help me? It will in the same way it did help the Bible writers who realize that in tough times, looking to the past, present, and future deeds of God. You say future. Well, remember the prophets, they looked into the future, and we have it. But looking into the past, present, and future deeds of God actually builds their faith. By being spectators, and in the way you only do that is really by looking back to what God has done already and then looking into your day and then looking forward to the future, by being spectators of the divine majesty of God, it actually helped them hold it together, and it's important that we engage in that practice ourselves. So just imagine the Babylonians are coming to march on your city your little Judea, your little Jerusalem, your little southern Israel, and they are the world's superpower. We already covered that they were rolling over everybody. You have no chance. Without God, you have no chance at all. It's just no way it's happening. There's no odds in Vegas or anything like that because you have no chance. And they are looking back at the past deeds of God, and they're saying, you know what? God has rescued his people before. We believe that God can rescue his people again. And when we start to think this way, this can move our hearts and our minds from faith to triumph by seeing, but not only seeing, seeing and expecting the person and power of God to show up. So if you're taking notes, there's only two things. I want to break this passage into two parts today. Two things we want to look at. Number one what we see when God shows up. What we see when God shows up. Look at verse 3. God came. Remember the language is graphic. It's supposed to make us think a little bit more beyond just what's there to some symbolism. God came. Right there. There you have it. It's what we call a theophany, which means the appearance of God in power and glory. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now that would usually mean to pause or a, if it's a song, a, a musical pause. Pause and think. 
His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Now, most Bible scholars think that this is a vision of God delivering his people from Egypt in the Exodus. Basically, what he's saying is that the Lord came from the areas of Mount Sinai. Remember now, the language is figurative. We might think of it this way. The Lord came from where he was in Mount Sinai to where his people were in Egypt to bring them back to his place at Mount Sinai. Same thing we think of Jesus. He came from heaven to earth to bring those who put their trust in him back to heaven with him. But, but the details, a lot of people get lost in the details. I don't think the details are the point. Rather, the point is the arrival of God and his presence with his people in a time of need. It also could mean this, I think, that we should be aware of the fact that sometimes, oftentimes, God comes from an unexpected direction to deliver his people. When you least expect it, we might say God shows up. That shows us that, that regardless of the specifics, Habakkuk is confident in the certainty of God's work. Habakkuk calls God the Holy One. That was Isaiah's favorite name for God. It is the name that Isaiah uses and the Bible uses to describe God's perfect moral purity. It's also a term that refers to God being separate from all the other false gods of this world, who really, we're going to use that term false gods as we go along, but false gods really don't exist. That's why we call them false gods. They exist in the minds of people. But also the term holy one has to do with God's majesty. And so here we have this picture of God's presence, of God's coming in, in power. And his power and his presence should cause in us wonder. It should cause awe. It should cause reverence. And those people in the presence of God who are aware of their sin will bow at his feet in the presence of his holiness. But the term also means, when we talk about the Holy One, it also means, in some sense, that God must keep his people close. Why must God keep his people close? Because it's true to his nature. It is a characteristic of who he is. And the verse concludes, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. When God comes, when his presence is sensed, when he is seen and felt in a powerful way in heaven and on earth, wherever one would look, all around they could look, it could be seen. If you, if you look around, actually, on the earth, if you look carefully, you can, in various ways, see his presence. But I will tell you one thing. You can't manufacture it. A lot of people try and manufacture it, but they can't manufacture it, and it ends up just sort of being this, like, this pep rally or something like that, 
God comes when he wants to come. Verse 4, his brightness, some versions say splendor, was like the light. Now, lightning might be a better word. He had rays flashing from his hand. And notice this, and there his power was hidden, some versions say veiled. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and fever, some versions say plague, followed at his feet. Some people, some versions say followed at his steps or his heels. He stood and measured. So he's, he's measuring, he's checking out the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Some versions say he made them tremble. And the everlasting, the idea is the ancient or the age-old mountains were scattered. Another version says they crumbled. Uh, the, the perpetual hills, the same thing, age-old, ancient uh, hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. Verse 7, he says, I saw, remember prophets had visions, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, uh, the curtains, some versions say dwellings, of the land of Midian trembled. Why? Because they were the enemies of God. So, again, there's a lot of language there. We could spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly everything, but we'd be here forever. Let's see what we can really just summarize it as. Here we see the coming of the Lord is seen as being bright. Got that? Dangerous and terrifying. The, the, the light of lightning refers to the radiance of God's presence and the brightness of the glory of God. Now, you say, I, I sort of get it, and the reason is, is that the coming of God, it's like when the Apostle Paul went to heaven. I know the guys write the books that say they knew exactly what was going on. Paul was like, there was really no words for it. There's really no words humanly speaking, to describe the coming of God. The point of the matter is, is that wherever God is, his glory shines in unusual brightness, and the term his hands uh, pertains to the working of his hand that shows that he's ready to what? He's ready to defend, and he's ready to save his people. Yet, despite the cosmic light show that's going on, we're told that his power was hidden. Why? It's just too powerful for us. We, we can't look upon it. Probably the reason why the, that, the, that the Lord was hidden in a cloud in, in the wilderness. I think of some of these things, I think of whenever, especially at the beach, but in other places, when you see a blazing sunrise, and I like to look at that and think, Oh, Lord, that is dim compared to your brightness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that the Lord is dwelling in unapproachable light when no man has seen or can see. John's gospel says this, speaking of when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation. This is a scary verse. Oh, this is the, the judgment. This is the verdict. That the light, Jesus, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That explains why people 
reject Jesus. They reject Jesus. They reject the light because they'd rather do what they want to do than what Jesus wants them to do. Verse 5 here, going back to Habakkuk chapter 3, tells us that pestilence, think of a fatal disease of some sort, and fever, usually associated with a plague, are personified excuse me, as coming with the Lord in judgment. Now, these two things, pestilence and fever or plague, are common in war. They happen quite a bit in war when uh, you know, health conditions deteriorate. They're also common in God-disciplining nations. And also they are common in God disciplining his own people. All very sobering reminders to us that all things are subject to the living God. Now these things were also weapons that were used by God against the Egyptians in Moses' day to get them to set God's people free. Now this is something you might hear Uh, Every once in a while, you may hear people say this, you know, all this judgment in the Old Testament, this is why I don't read it. Let me ask you, friend, on this one. You say, I only read the New Testament. I don't want to know anything about all that that judgment. So let me challenge you on this, loved ones. How then do you think of the cross? If you don't like the idea of God's judgment, what do you make of God? The cross. You know, Hebrews 10.31 in the New Testament says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you want to know what that looks like, you can see many examples of it in the Old Testament, but you can see an example of it as well on the cross. At the cross, God comes in judgment on sin. The judgment is put on Jesus, the sinless one. Why does he do that? Well, Habakkuk already told us last week, and we've already read the verse. He comes in judgment on sin at the cross to bring mercy to sinners. In his wrath, he deals with the sin, but also he brings mercy. That's why Jesus said, if you want to go to heaven, you have to repent and believe. You have to repent, you have to be willing to turn from your sin to God, and you have to believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins. Here in Habakkuk in verse 6 and 7, we see that the earth shakes, the nations are startled, the mountains tremble. We might put it this way, what seems to be so very strong and have such a solid foundation is seen to be frail seem to be weak, seem to have almost no foundation at all. Also, the mountains and the hilltops were the, also were the homes to the false Canaanite gods that had sucked God's people in. So God doesn't only want to discipline his people, he wants to get those false gods out of the land, and it worked when the Babylonians came. But those mountains, those hilltops that, that housed The Canaanite gods, they crumble before the living God. And how does God take them out? How does God take them down? In verse 6, two words, he looked. That's it. He looked. That's all it takes for a cosmic 
upheaval. That's all it takes for God just to take a look to make this planet, to make Earth, jump like a frog. That's, a, that's all it takes. A simple look of God. The things of nature, which many of us think have always been and always will be, will bow at the feet of the eternal king, their creator. Remember Jesus said, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that, that they, you know, he's coming in on uh, Palm Sunday on the triumphal entry and the religious leaders were like, hey, you know, stop it. Stop all the commotion. Tell your people not to, not to be saying all this stuff about you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But, but Jesus said, hey, if they don't say it, the rocks will. Everything is sort of like, you know, just at status quo right now, but there will come a time, figuratively speaking, or maybe even actually, when nature will sing his praises to the glory of God. This is why we sing. This is why we sing songs of worship of the Lord's glory and the Lord's might. This is why we serve our king. And what are some words in this passage we could use about our king? Well, one thing is we could say about him, and we're experiencing it right now. He is a disrupting king. He has come now and he's going to disrupt the world. He is right now perhaps disrupting our world. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad that you're here today and maybe you keep watching and you're like, I don't know what's happening to me. He's disrupting your world. And let me tell you something from someone who tried to fight that battle, you will lose. You will lose. So I would implore you, beg you to put your trust in Jesus today. So we, we serve him because he is our wonderful king. He's our disrupting king, and we celebrate him. Part of our singing the songs of his glory and his might is we are celebrating with him his past, present, and future victories. So that's number one, what we see when God shows up. Number two is the reason why God shows up. The reason why God shows up. Look at verse 8. Now Habakkuk is actually addressing the Lord directly, uh, directing the victorious warrior God, and he begins with a question. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath or your rage against the sea? That or when you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Perhaps he's, 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 he's asking about the Nile, when you messed up the Nile River in Egypt, were you mad at the river? When, when the people crossed the Red Sea and you parted it, were you, were you upset with the Red Sea or, or, the, or the Jordan River when Joshua took the people in to the Promised Land? Were you, were you upset with that? Or, or maybe thinking about the ocean, right, with, with Jonah. Were you, were you mad at the ocean when that happened? Lord, were you angry with the water? The obvious answer is no. We're not supposed to think that God was angry with the water, the idea is that when the Lord comes in power, he will come controlling everything, including the forces of nature, which he will use often the forces of nature as his weapons as he fights against people. Now, it's very interesting when it talks about the Lord uh, parting the sea and moving the sea and stuff like that. There's a great term that's used for it. It just says that all he has to do is blast his nostrils. Could you imagine that? So all the upheaval is he just gives a look. 
And one time he looks at the sea and he looks down and goes, you know, kind of snorts at it. <laughs> and, and there it goes. And it just parts. The Lord's anger is not against the water. The Lord's anger is against those who have enslaved his people and the false gods that they encouraged their people to serve and they themselves served. Make no mistake about it. The plagues in Egypt, the drowning of Pharaoh's army was a judgment of God and a picture of what the judgment of God is like. And once again, it's important for us to remind ourselves it is the remembrance of God's faithful intervention in the past that fuels Habakkuk and he is walking by faith now instead of chapter one wondering what's going on because he's remembering these mighty deeds of God. Habakkuk is no longer looking and praying for God's intervention again, or he is looking, sorry, he is longing and, and praying for God's intervention again, and the truly oppressed, I'm not talking about the people who like always feeling sorry for themselves, but the truly oppressed are invited to call upon the name of the Lord. Now let's be honest with one another. For those of us who are watching from an American audience, the American church hates any talk of the judgment of God. The American church largely ignores the judgment of God. But loved ones, here's the truth. Ignoring something or not talking about something does not make it go away. The judgment of God is not going to go away. And if you want to avoid the judgment of God, Jesus actually talked about this in Luke chapter 6, you'll probably pack a very large group of people into a building. You'll get a lot of people who want to listen to your positive message, but what's the problem? They won't repent. Remember Jesus said you have to repent and believe. There's nothing to repent of if you don't see the judgment of God. There's nothing to believe in if you think everything is okay. And this is, explains why many people would say that our churches are so full of people who are really not Christians in God's eyes. But what comfort, and, and here, just forget that you're an American for a second, if you are, what comfort the judgment of God brings to his people who truly live under oppression. I mean, just think about that for a minute. I'm going to tell you a story, if you've been here a while, you've heard me tell it probably one or two times before, but for those of you who've never heard it, it might be, might be worth retelling the story. One night at youth group, uh, one of the female leaders couldn't make it, and so we broke up the kids into small groups, and so what I would do would be, if a leader was not there, I would, I would take the group, and so one of the groups. So I ended up with a group of about a dozen middle school girls, right? How exciting, Pastor Jim and the middle school girls. And the, and the subject was the judgment of God. So I asked the girls what they thought about the judgment of God. And boy, you want to talk about squirming and ew, and you would have thought I put you know, worms in their hair or something like that. And so I went down the line and I asked each girl what they thought about the judgment of God. 
And we went down, oh, I hate it. Oh, I don't want to think about it. I don't know anything about it. I don't want to talk about it. I didn't like tonight what we were talking about. It makes me feel uncomfortable. All the way down the line until we came to the very last girl. She was relatively new to the United States. She was a Christian who lived in Egypt. Her family was very, very well educated. I believe the father was here, and God bless him, he was pumping gas. I think the mother was working in Dunkin' Donuts, and they had very prestigious jobs in Egypt. But where they lived, they were driven out of the land by the Muslim Brotherhood. They were very fearful for their lives. And so when I came to her and I said, well, what do you think about God's judgment? Do you think God will judge? I'll never forget her answer. I sure hope he does. Because she had experienced what it was like to really be oppressed by the enemies of the living God. And so while we might think that judgment is a horrible thing to other people in other parts of the world, they can't wait for it. They're wondering what is taking so long. Verse 9, he continues, Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sewn over your arrows. Another version says, You called for many arrows. Selah. Stop. Think about it. Pause. God is coming to fight on behalf of his people. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. Or another version says, They shuddered. The overflowing of the water passed by. Torrents of water were just kind of going by the, by, the, by the mountains. The deep or the ocean uttered its voice. Another version says it roared and lifted its hands on high. What does that mean? The waves were coming up so super high. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. They just stopped. God was in the house and they just stopped, could be, uh, you know, the idea is they just cease to give light, could be referring to Joshua 10. At the light or the, or the brightness of your arrows, they went at the shining or the lightning of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. Another verse says, you marched through the land in fury. You trampled the nations in anger. Another verse says, you trampled the nations in wrath. Now, what sounds scary to some brings comfort and confidence to the prophet. Did you hear that? What is scary to some brings confidence and comfort to the prophet, brings confidence and comfort to the man of God or the woman of God who knows that our God is coming and our God comes in power, he comes in glory, and our God rules and our God reigns. Where are the wise of chapter 1? Where did they go? Now they are being turned into the Lord has a plan. The assurance of the fact that the Lord has a plan, but not only does he have a plan, he has the invincible power to carry out his plan to defeat all evil because our faith, this is important for us to know, our faith, is more than ideas. Our faith is based on the acts of God. Now, Bible scholars are very divided on this passage as well they should be. Who knows what he's talking about or is it a collage of different things? 
I mean, is this, is this a vision that's looking back? I mean, this could even be something like the flood and various things throughout, throughout God's history. Or is he looking ahead to the, to the second coming of Jesus? I'm okay with both. And I think Habakkuk is too. You see, friends, you might think, oh, well, it's nice that he has assurance, but, but the assurance is ours as well. The book of Hebrews tells us that our Savior King, the Lord Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the word of God promises he will come again. But not only does he come, we see on a regular basis that, that the Lord steps into the chaos of this world. It's not like he left us here, like the alien theory. You know, they left us here and they're going to come back for us. Not a proponent of that myself. And, but, but it's not like he left us here and lets us deal with the chaos. No, he steps into the chaos of the world, which is the history of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth. He stepped into the chaos of this world. Don't forget, back in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2, why were the Babylonians coming? Because the people were sinners. Because the people had left God. Yet, what does chapter 3 tell us? He comes. What does God tell us in the person of the Lord Jesus? He comes. This is something that, that, that blew the mind of the Apostle Paul. He says, while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinning, it's still going on. Christ died for us. Maybe we should take a Selah. Maybe we should take a moment to think about that. That in the midst of even our sinful lifestyles or just our ignoring God, leaving him alone, not caring about him, not thinking about him, he comes. He comes to his people. Now verse 13 is key. You went forth. Why did he go forth? For the salvation of your people. That's why he came. For the salvation of your people. Another version says to deliver your people for the salvation with your anointed. For salvation with your anointed. Another version says to save your anointed one. Now scholars want to debate. Is he talking about the anointing of Moses, of the kings, of the people, of Jesus? I just go, okay. <laughs> I'm fine with all of that. You struck, he's talking directly to God, you struck or you crushed the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundations to neck. Another version says, you stripped him from foot to neck. Selah, think about that. Think about the mighty power of God coming to, to save his people. And it's just not like he's like, oh, come on, let's go, let's go. No, he's coming in power. Verse 14, you thrust through with your own arrows the head of his villages or the warriors, they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. Another version says, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You say, which is it, the, the poor or the weak? Well, it's important to remember that the word poor in the Bible often, probably more often than it, it speaks about money, speaks about the oppressed people of God. Verse 15, uh, you, you walked or you trampled, another version says, through the sea with your horses, through the heap or the surging of the great waters, of the waves of the great waters. The Lord wants us to see in passages like this that his acts in the past demonstrate he is able to save 
in the present and in the future all who put their faith and trust in him. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing is going to stop him. Not even death could stop Jesus Christ. Habakkuk says, you went forth. He says, another version says, you came out. Why? For the salvation of your people. Even in the worst of times, God showed up. The completely worst of times, God showed up. And for Habakkuk, the sadness of the people of God losing their faith, which was happening in his time, the sadness of society falling apart, the sadness of knowing that that this wickedness, that the Babylonians were coming for them, is replaced by hope of the coming of the Lord. Friends, that is the message we need to remember for people today. That we find ourselves in the midst of so many different things, so many different things going on. But our hope is grounded in the coming of the Lord. And these images are so graphic. Not only does the Lord show up, but if you think about it, it's like he almost tears apart the whole world to deliver his people. It's like he tears the place up to deliver his people and to lead his people home. But friends, that is the hope of the gospel. That on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was torn up. He was beaten and bloodied. So all who would repent and believe, all who would repent, all who would turn to God and believe, put their trust in the Lord Jesus, could be delivered could be placed in the position of experiencing the forgiveness of sins, could experience mercy in the midst of God's judgment. And the thing is, friend, remember this. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're, you're saying, man, I've messed up my whole life. What a, what a disaster it's been. God would never take me. Remember, when does God come? Right on time. Right on time. Always comes right on time. Perhaps you were living that way for a long time, so the meaning of the cross is going to be deeply planted in you. You're, you're going to know that you know that you know that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. After Jesus had rose from, was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, the apostle Paul wrote these words. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, we might say, just at the right time, at the perfect time in history, and maybe in your history. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What happened? Jesus showed up. Born of a woman under the law, you had to obey God, to redeem. What does that word mean? It means to buy but often more than just buy, it would often tie to someone who would buy a slave for the express intent of setting them free. To redeem those who are under the law or the penalty of the law, that the Bible says we have to keep it perfectly. There's a few things. You ever tell a lie? You did. You didn't keep it perfectly. 
to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, when you read the Gospels, it's important to look for times when you see not only the power of God, we're always looking at the, the power of God to heal, but it's also important that we're looking for the judgment of God. I'll give you two quick examples of that. One is when we, we get the preview of the judgment of God when, when Jesus is casting out demons, that, that the powers of evil will not go on forever having their oppressive nature on people, on God's people. That's not going to happen at all. Do I believe that we can be demon-possessed as Christians? I don't. Do I believe that we can be oppressed? I do. And when Jesus was on the cross, there was a great darkness that came over the land as God was judging sin on his perfect son. And then there was an earthquake. Some of the very things that we've seen here today. The Apostle Paul tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the, the unseen world and the whole universe shook. And then in Colossians chapter 2, after telling us that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, he says this, Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, we might say the unseen evil enemies of God, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Later on in the Bible, at the end, Revelation 6.17, looks at the very end of time and asks this question about in the great day of wrath, in the great day of judgment, who can stand? And the answer is simply this. Who can stand God's judgment? It is those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus. If you never have, today's your day. Today is the fullness of time for you. Today is the day for you to avoid all of this terror and be welcomed into the glorious light of the Lord Jesus. Then what do you do? Well, it's like most of the people watching, probably, you are then to be, have, it says, the just shall live by his faith. You see, passages like this in one sense, there's a little bit of a terrifying nature to it, but in another sense, as you rest in the security of what Jesus has done, not what you have done, it can calm your nerves and fill you with wonder at the grace of God, that he would do this for you, that this all-powerful God would want to come to save you. And it will, they help us to stand in awe of our Savior King, Remembering the mighty works of God will help you face today. Remembering the mighty works of God will help you rejoice in the God of your salvation. Why? Because there's something you know when you worship the King. You know Jesus comes. He always comes you may not know when, and for somebody here today, it might be right now, but Jesus always shows up. That is the hope that everybody who has put their trust in Jesus Christ has, and today, 
instead of being sucked into everything that's going on in our world, let us rejoice, stand in wonder, and stand in awe of the God who always shows up. Let's pray.